Get ready to meet the trailblazers driving the human change behind our clean energy future. This week, our trailblazer is Chris Voss, the former lead FBI negotiator for international kidnapping, crisis and hostage situations. Today, the best-selling author of Never Split the Difference is bringing his many years of high-stakes negotiations to global conversations, including climate change. Chris walks us through the application of tactical empathy, curiosity, and getting to destination yes amidst the divided public discourse pertaining to our clean energy future. We're here to fuel a new energy conversation, and it starts with you. Chris Voss, it's such a delight to have you as part of this Trailblazers series. Thank you so much for, for joining us. This is my first time uh, talking with someone who spent their life negotiating, negotiating kidnaps. But I feel like with a last name like Ransom, I'm one of uh, many that you've dealt with over your career, given your uh, very successful negotiations of hundreds of kidnappings. Um, but I wanted to start at the very beginning. You know, when you hear a story like yours, this incredible career of leading these high pressure, high stress negotiations, sort of wonder what, what childhood was like. And I read that you grew up in a small town in Iowa where there were sort of more more people in the federal agency you ended up working for for a lot of your career than there were in the town you grew up in. So what was the early influence? Was it a Midwestern mum? Was it this desire to protect people from school bullies? Where did where did negotiation start for you? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I just, I just think it was principally problem solving. My parents expected me to work hard and figure stuff out. My father was an entrepreneur. Yeah, both my father and my mother, big influences. You know, Midwestern mom, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what's the difference between a terrorist and a Midwestern mom? You can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> you know, my mother wanted, uh, knew what she wanted from me. And my father, you know, wanted me to be honest and work hard and figure stuff out. I worked for my father, but he did in my family. And he'd give us a task and have us figure it out. So I principally think it's it's those things. You spent 24 years as an FBI hostage negotiator, but you actually started your career in negotiation in many ways, spending five uh, months as a volunteer on a suicide prevention line, talking people quite literally off the ledge. What did that experience working with the suicide prevention line teach you? Yeah, well, you know, it really sort of uh, taught me that we didn't call it emotional intelligence back then. But it really taught me the power of emotional intelligence, of actually applying empathy. A lot of people think empathy is something you have, not something you do. You know, a friend of mine, Stephen Kotler, wrote a book, and uh, in, in one of his books, um, and this one was, um, it's actually a fiction book. He writes mostly nonfiction, but his character said, empathy is about the transmission of information. Then compassion is the reaction to that information. So empathy is an action, showing you understand, instead of actually understanding. So the hotline was, you know, show them you understand their problems, show them you understand their emotions, and suddenly everything is going to move forward really, really fast. And in particularly on a hotline, you know, you see the stuff on movies and TVs, you think it takes you hours and hours to talk somebody off a ledge. And at the hotline, they said, look, uh, there's a 20-minute time limit on all calls. And in fact, if you're doing it right, you're going to be done a lot sooner than 20 minutes. And I remember thinking, like, 20 minutes? You know, in the movies, they got people up there for hours. And that's when I first began to understand that the application of empathy actually accelerated agreements. 
That's a very powerful idea. And and you mentioned their emotional intelligence in general. And one of the things I've heard you say about the book Getting to Yes, which for such a long period of time was sort of the Bible of negotiation before your book came along, was that would have been a really different book if we'd understood emotional intelligence better then. Can you explain a little bit of, uh, you know, you say it's intellectually sound, but the difference between, say, a Getting to Yes and your books uh, don't split the difference. Yeah, well, um, and I, you know, I met Roger Fisher when I was up at Harvard, and, and Roger Fisher's emotional intelligence, you know, one of the authors of Getting to Yes, his emotional intelligence is through the roof. I mean, just crazy. He really understood people. But the world that he came from, the academic world, and, you know, it was before Daniel Goleman, it was before a lot of stuff has been put out, you know, he's got to put it out there as a rational process. Separate the person from the problem. Get them to agree to a process and then engage in a process. Like, no. You know, that, that ain't going to work. Find out what their underlying motivations are. How do you find out? You ask them. No, they're not going to tell you that. You know, people feel vulnerable. If, if, like, why do you want this? I'm not telling you. You know, I give up my leverage. And and the other thing about getting to yes, like nearly every hostage negotiator that I know, that read getting to yes after they got trained would all say, this book makes a lot of sense. And that would be the only thing they would say. Mm-hmm. Like none of them ever said, I solved this negotiation with this book. And that's why I like, all right, so intellectually sound. But when you go to apply it, somehow it breaks down. So that's really the difference because human beings are not intellectually sound. <laughs> <laughs> And I wanted to talk to you about that because you've spoken about this idea, everything in life is in negotiation and there are kind of these immutable human laws. There's this way, whether you're a terrorist or a business person, um, that apply to all of us. Can you give us a sense of some of these human laws and how they apply to negotiation? Yeah, well, um, first one, I mean, just, just feeling understood is transformative for the other person. And it's transformative and it really sparks them to action in a positive way like you know effectively it's epiphany when when we were working on the book tall ross said i think when you get somebody to say that's right then they've just experienced an epiphany and then i looked up what are the neurochemicals that are released when you experience an epiphany and one of them is oxytocin oxytocin is the bonding drug so you get a that's right out of somebody and they feel that what you said is so insightful that they so completely agree. They say, that's right. They experience an epiphany. They bond with you. Now, also, you know, everybody's done this. You wake up anywhere from two o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the morning with a blinding flash of insight or an epiphany. And then you get up and you do something in the direction of that epiphany. So there's something about a that's right that not only causes people to bond to you, this application of emotional intelligence, you know, what we refer to as the black swan method now, but that when they're going to take a step in your direction, they feel this compulsion to take a positive step towards you. And that's why it accelerates outcomes in a good way. You know, you know, you get a that's right out of a terrorist. He doesn't go like, wow, I feel better. Now he kills a hostage. Now he says, wow, I feel better. I'm going to let him go. So then with the body of literature that's out there sort of saying that there are gender differences in negotiation, there are cultural differences in negotiation, there are generational differences in negotiation, how do you respond to that? Is there, is there truth in that? 
there's gender differences, cultural differences, um, uh, generational differences in bad negotiation. Like I've, I've seen a fair amount of data out there that says women are penalized more for negotiating than men are. Women are penalized more for negotiating badly than men are. But the black swan method is not about bad negotiation, so there's nothing I could do to help that. As a point of fact, you know, women who employ, employ the black swan method tend to accelerate their outcomes faster than men do because I think women globally are conditioned, they're nurtured to be more emotionally content, uh, conscious than little boys are. You know, I mean, from an early age, most cultures nurture girls to learn persuasion and influence while the little boys are cultured to fight. So I think women have a head start on it based on culture or nurturing. And, but then, and then culture, gender, age, all these things are layered over the fact that you're wired the same as a human being. Like every human being on earth, whether or not they're a, a Muslim, a Christian, a Buddhist, uh, an Asian, an African, or a Latino, everybody's got an amygdala. And the wiring of the amygdala is the same in every single human being. And that's why when you get down into emotional intelligence-based negotiation, it works on everybody because it works on human beings wiring, which is you've got no matter what your age, your gender, your religion, your diet. I want to come back to emotional intelligent negotiation, but something you said then really struck me, which is um, there's a pattern in bad negotiation. I mean, you've watched scores, no doubt, of bad negotiations as you run seminars and classes. You've taught at business schools right around the world. What patterns do you see in bad negotiation? What do we have to be catching in ourselves and redirecting? Well, one, one real one real bad pattern we see constantly is if you want to if you want to speak first, you don't want to pitch first. You want to make your argument first. You want to explain first, or if you want to go with price first. Um, that's real common. People are trying to set the parameters. People are trying to get in there, say, have their say. Um, you know, if if you're if you're talking first, it's a cliche, but you're not gathering any data. You know, I, I did a talk earlier today on a new social media app called Fireside. Mark Cuban and I discussed negotiation. And I said, all right, so this is what I believe. You don't name price first. You don't go first. And he said, yeah, because you're not gathering any data. Data is everything. He said, literally, data is everything. So most people want to give data or show their data as opposed to gather data from the very beginning. And you really begin to gain the upper hand just in terms of knowledge if you let the other side go first. Now, the other side is so appreciative of the fact that you let them speak and didn't talk over them or shut them down or interrupt them. They're also going to be more amenable to being cooperative with you because you let them go first. You're just gathering data, but you're making them feel wonderful. So you kind of got you kind of got a double advantage to doing that, and so many people do the opposite. They got they got to name the price first, they got to explain first, they got to pitch first, sales process, whatever it is, give you value proposition. You're not gathering any data when you do that, and a lot of people do that. Yeah, I can bet. I feel like we're taught to anchor and that there's an advantage to going first. And one of your big philosophies is what sounds like a counterintuitive idea, like go slow to go fast. Can you talk us through that? 
Right. Yeah. You know, well, it's first of all, you know, taking your time, gathering data. Then the whole anchoring thing, what, what happens when people don't measure is the deals they didn't make. Mm. Like anchoring skews your short-term success on the deals that you made, but you're driving lots of deals away from the table that you should have made, maybe on another term. Like maybe they had something really valuable to offer that was more valuable than money. Like in, in my company, if you can give us significant enough social media visibility, you got a million followers on Twitter, I'm going to do your podcast because you, the commodity that you've gotten from me is my time. If you've got four followers on Twitter, I'm not doing your podcast. So, you know, there are other things besides a price term that are really valuable in all interactions. And if you high anchor on terms of price, then the other side goes like, well, I'll never make this deal. And they just walk away and it's a deal you should have made. So I want to know, you know, what you think the realm of possibilities are from the beginning. And then I want to make it better for both of us. You know, so someone said to me earlier today, negotiation is, is about the, the art of creating possibilities. I love that phrase. Well, let, let, let me hear what you think the possibilities are, and we're going we're gonna to brainstorm and come up with something better. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I, I one of my favorite quotes, actually, that I've heard you say uh, about the dynamics of negotiations and human nature in that mix is that we have multiple ways of lying, but we all have a single way that we tell the truth. Can you explain to us why that's a really powerful idea? Yeah, and it makes life so much easier. I mean, that's really the way a, a polygraph works. Like everybody worldwide is pretty familiar with what a polygraph is. It's a machine somebody straps you into to see if you're lying. Well, a polygraph just figures out the one way you tell the truth. If you tell the truth, if you, not everybody tells the truth. So the first question, and the polygraph picks that up. But if you tell the truth, you tell the truth one way. So the, the guy running the machine on you says, what day is it? What's your name? Where are you? What'd you have for breakfast? You know, um, where do you live? All questions that you should tell the truth to. So if you tell the truth, you will answer each one of those pretty much exactly the same way, whatever that demeanor is. And then they have all these different wires and gauges on you, not to learn all your tells, you know, to use a poker term, you know, the flinches that you do when you lie because you probably got a bunch of them. But the only thing the machine says is you changed out of the way you tell the truth. So then it makes detecting deception in the other side a lot easier because you pro each person probably lies four or five ways. Now I can try to catch all five of those ways, or maybe, you know, I saw a movie once where one of the bad guys said, you know, there's 75 ways to lie and I know them all. You know, it takes a long time to figure all that out. But if I, if I get to know you enough to know what you look like when you're telling the truth, that's all I need to know. Chris, is there a negotiation over the course of your whole career that you're proudest of? And can you kind of take us to that, that moment in that situation? Yeah, you know, um, there were two in, uh, in kidnapping negotiations where right after the, we had a case go really bad, the Burnham Sabero case in the Philippines. 
you know, I took a hard look at everything they were we were doing in negotiation strategy, and I wanted to change how we did proof of life. And proof of life used to be basically your bank security question. You know, what was the name of your first dog? What was the first? What, what was the maker of your first car? What's your favorite topping of pizza? You know, that's a what question, which sounds like an open-ended question, but there's a very specific answer, and you're probably the only one that knows it. So it's real simple for the bad guys to do that. You know, you, you've got me hostage, and the uh, negotiator says, find out what Chris's name of his first dog, and you ask me, and I say the dog, and then bang, you prove that I'm alive. But it was really easy, and it doesn't create any interaction, interaction between me and you, or it doesn't put you as a kidnapper in problem-solving mode. So I just decided, what's the natural question? How do we know the hostage is alive? Leave it open-ended. And the bad guys decide to uh, decide how to answer that. And what we found was that created dynamics that were to our advantage, slowed the bad guys down, and caused them to interact with the victim to try to figure it out. So the first time we tried it, in the middle of the kidnapping, the, uh, it was in Ecuador, the, the kidnappers start ref return, referring to our victim as, as his name was Pepe. They start calling him Don Pepe, which is a sign of respect. And we're like, what in God's name is going on here? Don Pepe, they respect this guy. Hmm. Whatever's going on, it works for us. And we'd created so much interaction between the kidnappers and a hostage, and he created a lot on his own that they began to respect him enough so that they got relaxed around him, he escaped. So our proof of life strategy was designed to accomplish one good thing. And that, you know, that's the case with really great negotiation strategies that are not adversarial. You create space for good things to happen. Mm. You don't know what they are, but you're confident enough in a process that something good, if it's going to happen, this is the maximum increase of possibilities, which is what empathy is about. What tactical empathy, getting the that's right out of somebody. It's creating the opportunity for good things, the art of the possible. So the, the, the hostage ends up escaping in that case, which was created because we, you know, we, we did, it was the art of the possible. And then the very next case after that, we ended up the, the kidnapper who was a murderer, we didn't know it at the time, but he was a murderer, promised us he wouldn't hurt the hostage, again, through the application of empathy in the interaction with a highly combative, highly dangerous, highly adversarial counterpart. You know, the classic definition of the negotiator that wants to win at your expense. And he basically, in some substance, promised not to hurt the hostage. And then... We rescued the hostage. So it was, it was all about the application of empathy in a situation that didn't seem like it called for empathy. And it was, again, it was the art of the possible. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. And you touched on something there that is one of the central ideas in, in your book and I know is one of the most popular parts of your content online, which I think is an interesting reflection, particularly on the moment the world is at and how much we feel we need this right now. But this idea of tactical empathy, can you explain that a little bit more to us? You know, it's really just demonstrating an understanding of the other side's perspective. And what really trips people up is they feel that understanding is agreement. Mm. And it's not. Now, the being understood, the feeling of being understood, 
is transformative for your counterpart and it, and they bond to you. It's just, it's just kind of crazy, but they bond to you and they become inclined to move in your direction just by feeling like they've been thoroughly understood. So it's the application of the ideas. And you see, uh, I'm, I'm listening to a documentary, The Human Factor, about Midas peace negotiations in the 90s. And one of the American negotiators said, empathy is about putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Well, that's only the start. And most people say, well, if I understand you, then I will tailor my message. If I think to myself, all right, if I was in your shoes, what would I feel? That'll cause me to tailor my message. That's that's not enough. Putting yourself in somebody's shoes and then articulating to them what you think that perspective is. The crazy thing, not only is it transformative for them, but it's transformative for you. The benefits for you in calming you down and clearing your head. And again, it's not agreement. On uh, the Clubhouse social media app, about, I don't know, now it's been a couple months when uh, Israel was shelling Hamas uh, locations in the Gaza Strip and the the shouting on social media between pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian people was just insane. I mean, and people were just, they were getting migraines on the, the social media apps like Clubhouse um, trying to make their case. And so I, ho- I, I hosted a Clubhouse and we said, okay, we want people, support of Israel and Palestine to come on. And here's the only ground rules. Whoever's supportive of the Palestinians has to say to an Israeli, all right, before I disagree with you, here's what I think your perspective is. Mm-hmm. Now, almost no one could achieve saying what the other side's perspective was. But what everybody missed was the mere act of trying to do that. Nobody shouted at anybody. Nobody's anger got out of control. And, you know, I and every every person that came on, if they were pro-Palestinian, they'd say, Israel is wrong. You know, Israel is this. Israel is that. And I go, wait, 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 wait. You can go there. It's okay to go there. But before you do, you have to say. Here's what I think your perspective is. Before I disagree, before I attack, here's what I think your perspective is. And there were no out-of-control conversations ever. What am I driving at? The mere act of trying to articulate the other side's perspective does more for you than it does for them, and it does a lot for them. I love that perspective and I love the personal responsibility that comes with that, the idea that each and every one of us can do that in our own interactions. And I guess I wanted to apply that idea. This whole podcast series is part of kind of a future energy conversation. And I'm thinking about that in the context of a very politicized, very um, divided debate around climate change and decisions we should and shouldn't be making. Um, how, How does that require leaders to show up differently in those conversations? And how do we think about public conversation in that context. So where you're inviting people into a dialogue, you can sort of set the ground rules. How might we apply that in media discourse and social media and the like? You know, the the real problem with that for leaders and political and politicians is, you know, as an American phrase, preaching to the choir. You know, you want to you want to say stuff that your supporters or people who are already behind you cheer you on and root you on. And 
they already support you. So the other the other side's not cheering you on. The, the people you're trying to convert, you know, you're attacking. But you got a group standing behind you going like, yeah, you tell them, you tell them. You know, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. So they get a tremendous amount of support from their supporters, mm-hmm. and they feel really good. So the fact that they didn't convert anybody doesn't even occur to them because they got so many people that were on their side to begin with patting them on the back. And I and they get caught up in a short-term sense of accomplishment of being cheered on by the people who already supported them. Now, then the other thing, too, is somebody tries to display empathy then a bunch of their supporters not understanding they're trying to build relationships will then criticism, criticize them. Oh, you're weak. You know, you, you should have been tougher. You should have been harder on them. So they feel an erosion of support from their base without understanding that they're invi- simultaneously invisibly beginning to co- convert people from the other mm-hmm. side. But the short-term satisfaction of that is not as not there as much. So, you know, they'll go, they'll go home at night wondering if they did well. You know, for, for example, in a family negotiation, uh, a gentleman that's a student of our material was viciously attacked um, at a family gathering by a sibling. And all he, he, told, he told me, he says, all I did was I wanted my sister to feel heard and to not disagree with anything she said. I just wanted her to feel heard. And he said she went on for an hour before she finally let up. And then it was over. So he went to bed that night feeling bad, like possibly that he didn't stand up for himself or he didn't, you know, he didn't advocate his position. He did nothing to gain with the other side. Now, imagine a politician doing the same thing, trying to demonstrate understanding and going to bed that night wondering I, my supporters are all criticizing me and I didn't get an ounce of goodwill feedback from the other side. Now, what happened to the gentleman that I'm telling you about the next day, his sister emailed him and said, yesterday I attacked you and you showed me nothing but love. Thank you for being my big brother. Hmm. So the, in the interim where we're waiting for it to sink in, you know, our own amygdala, our own negative response thinking systems are, are beating us up. I didn't stand up for myself. We don't, you know, politicians not going to get that feedback that they're actually winning the day. All they're getting is criticism from their side. And I think that's why so many politicians are reluctant to do it because the, the benefits are not instantaneous. I want to touch on you, the amygdala there because I think it's one of the really interesting parts of the neuroscience of your work that you speak about quite a lot. And then I guess it, uh, when I hear that, I go, okay, so how do we calm that reaction in ourselves? Because a lot of what you're saying is we're emboldening and encouraging the wrong sort of behavior, behavior that's actually not constructive to getting to a better outcome. Um, you've said that you are 31% smarter when we're positive, but 70% of our amygdala is negative. So how can we actually in high stress states or where we naturally want to defend or to the point of the person you just talked about there, you know, I want to step in and articulate my position and all those sorts of things. How, when we're feeling under attack or under stress, do we not contribute to worsening the situation? Do you have any strategies? Yeah, you know, and the only way you can do it is with practice and preparation. And, you know, you practice in your small stakes 
negotiations to prepare for the high stress interactions. And, and it's very much like, you know, it's mental hygiene and mental hygiene is like oral hygiene. You know, do I have to brush my teeth today? I brushed them yesterday. Yes, you do. Do I have to brush my teeth tonight? I brushed them this morning. Yes, you do. It's an oral hygiene issue because your, your, your consumption of food in the default mode is a downward spiral. So if we're in a, if we're, if our default wiring, if you will, if our default mindset is survival and it is, and the survival mindset is pessimistic and it is because the optimistic caveman went in the cave when he shouldn't have and got eaten and has no descendants. <laughs> the only cavemen that lived were the pessimistic ones. That's why we're all wired to be pessimistic. So what do you got to do? You got, you really got to tend to it every day. And a lot of these cliche things that are articulated by, you know, people that walk around in robes and wear beads and eat vegetables and fruits and want advocate world peace, you know, that begins to get associated with them like gratitude, a gratitude exercise every morning, name three things you're grateful for. But gratitude is a way to maintain a positive mind frame, which makes you smarter. So I do a gratitude exercise for a number of reasons, both missionary and mercenary makes me a better human being. And it also makes me a more effective human being satisfies the missionary and the mercenary. Gratitude is a way you insulate yourself from these negative reactions in spur of the moment. Curiosity, curiosity, genuine curiosity is a highly positive state of mind and you cannot be genuinely curious and angry simultaneously. It's impossible. So if you get into a practice of curiosity, like, wow, I really wonder what made you say that. <laughs> or, you know, social media meme that I've seen a lot where people say, if you had any idea what they're struggling with, you take it easy on them. Well, you can say to yourself, wow. I, w I wonder what you're struggling with. You know, be genuinely curious. That's another way to, to keep yourself out of a negative mind fret, mindset. So anything, you know, in, in that does anything to put you in a negative mindset, and there's probably four or five things to practice doing because you're going to need different things at different times. That's actually your, your best your best approach. I love seeing that, like the same oral hygiene routine of brushing your teeth, having a mental hygiene checklist that you work through. That's such a great practical takeaway for everyone listening. Um, you mentioned curiosity there. And one of the things I've, I've read um, from your work is the idea that we need to be very careful with why questions because they can often come off as accusatory and we need to understand the power of what and how. Can you talk us through, because in the world of business, I feel we've been talking about the why uh, and that importance, that passion, that purpose piece for some time. And I feel like that's a really important nuance to the discussion, particularly in the context of change and when we're trying to shift people to a new way of doing things or a new way of thinking. Yeah, you know, and, and that, that's the craziest one too, because we do get this feedback, find out their why. So, I mean, but there's two reasons why that word triggers a negative reaction. Like when you ask somebody why they did something, you may not, you might, sometimes you might actually want to know, but when you think they did something wrong, you always ask them why they did that. 
And so what kind of feedback do we as humans get? What's the chances when they ask me, when they think I'm wrong, they're going to ask me why? So people are conditioned over and over and over. Why'd you make that choice? People are taught that they're being accused. The percentage of it happening is high enough. Like, you know, the human nature response, you only need to get shocked by, you know, uh, an electrical outlet once. You could touch that outlet 50 times, but you touch it once, you get shocked. You're going to remember not to touch it. We only need really one negative feedback and fully no less than half the time, probably 90% of the time, somebody gets asked why they're being accused of making a mistake. There's just too much reinforcement that it's an accusation to think that people are not why battered. So the mere act of just saying, you know, going from why'd you do that to what made you do that, that immediately begins to take the sting off the question. The this accusation goes away. What made you do that almost makes you think, well, something external caused me to do that. I'm not culpable. So it's easier for me to discuss what my influences were that caused me to make this decision. So you get people being a lot more honest just by switching from why to what. Brilliant. And so much like power and simply thinking about what, why am I, why am I asking the question and how do I think about framing it differently? Um, and turning it into a what question. Can you talk us about making uh, the idea of a condition to putting something in as a condition, particularly in a negotiation and a pathway to getting an outcome? Yeah, you know, and, and I'd like to talk about about yes a, a little bit as, you know, as, as a destination, if you will. Um, you know, because in, it never split the difference. You know, we say that there are three kinds of yeses, commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit. And so many people are used to getting someone trying to trap them into the commitment yes that all they say is the counterfeit yes mm. and you know we've also taught in a black swan method yes is nothing without how and we've even evolved that when we're teaching the black swan method even more now and we say yes is nothing is how is everything so i'll I refer back to to put one more you know bit of color on the word yes again this uh, documentary i was listening to the human factor about Mitty's peace negotiations, one of the negotiators said, you know, I think when they said yes, it was only aspirational. Mm. You know, they aspired. They didn't really know that yes was never anything more than an aspiration. And so under the best conditions, yes is just an aspiration, which is why yes is nothing without how. If you've got an aspiration you still need a how are we going to achieve this aspiration? How are we going to implement it? Yes by itself is never, ever enough, especially if it, at its very best, it's only an aspiration. So, you know, that's the first issue. You know, don't kid yourself as to what a yes actually mm -hmm. is. And in many cases, it's counterfeit. So the really easy thing to what, what do we want to get to? And yes is not agreement. We're after agreement with implementation. That's what we're after. So if if yes is an agreement, if then let's what is agreement? Well, first of all, let me let me get into no a little bit. If I say, are you against this deal? Instead of would you like this deal? People are gonna nobody's gonna say yes, and if they say yes, it's gonna be counterfeit. If I say, are you against this deal? They're going to say, no, I'm not against it, but here are the following problems. 
Now I got conditions for implementation. Now I understand how to get out of aspiration and get into how. And people will give you the how answers after they've said no because they didn't feel that they let themselves in for anything. I can, I, I've said no. So having protected myself, I can outline the conditions and there's no commitment implied. So it's really how do we accelerate into how if there is even a how, and there may not be. One of the, the phrase that gets introduced at the very beginning of never split the difference is a way of saying no, which is how am I supposed to do that? Hmm. Which is really, all right, so how do we implement? There may be no way to implement this. By me asking you how am I supposed to do that, that's actually get, getting is designed to get you to think about the impossibility or the difficulty of implementation on my end. It's an implementation-based question. So we get completely out of the, the yes dynamic and really into what does implementation looks, look like. And you get into that much more quickly by, if you need to, by using no as the doorway because people feel safe when they say no so they can discuss implementation with you without feeling like they had to go move forward. And I love that, how am I supposed to do this and the way that links to the possibility creation that you talked about seeing negotiation as earlier in our conversation. I wanted to touch on two elements of the, the climate and energy piece that I think really pertain to a lot of your work, one being time and one being prospect theory. Um, we might start with prospect theory. Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, this whole idea that we're twice as sensitive to loss as we are to gain. And I was interested, you know, there are a few things, I guess, that are more devastating a loss to comprehend. And in fact, it's almost overwhelmingly so than the loss of our biodiversity, our planet as we know it. Um, is there a, a way that we're missing that in conversations around climate? Is there a way we need to reframe that conversation to harness the power of that idea better? Um, yeah, well, you know, I would, com I would combine it with sort of vision drives decision. Um, you know, people really, and, and of course, the vision of loss. And people are usually comparing their short-term loss and they're really focused on it versus the long-term loss. And I think that people that are less sensitive to climate change are thinking like, well, what do I got to give up now? And how much good is that going to do? And, you know, so I, I, I'm not really part of the problem, but you want me to be part of the solution. For, and so you want me to give stuff up the fixes. So you're really, you're really starting to struggle with people's sense of autonomy. And like, can't you see that the climate is changing? Well, you're taking away somebody's autonomy because you're trying to force an idea down their throat. So a little bit more is like, like how, how do you, how do you see this working out? You know, get people to at least articulate what their thinking is. Getting people, and also, you know, if, if you don't believe that the climate is changing or if you have a disagreement, you know, asking someone, well, how are you thinking about this? Because everybody's thinking makes a lot more sense when it's contained inside their head. Hmm. And in many cases, as soon as they say it out loud, if it makes no sense, when they say it out loud, they'll go like, wow, now that I've said that out loud, it doesn't make as much sense as it did when it was rattling around in my brain. Or if what they said makes no sense, if you just repeat it back to them, right? Here's what I think you said. 
just because the polar ice caps are melting and there's there's water where there never used to be water, you think that that doesn't mean the climate is changing because they just said it. And so repeating it back to them, paraphrasing effectively, not in an accusatory manner, but just, you know, before I disagree, here's what I think you just said. And then trying to say it back as if you're genuinely curious and you're genuinely trying to understand because then then they also get to hear that outside, which is why effectively you're just being a great sounding board. And every human being loves a counterpart who's a great sounding board. What they didn't realize was you as a sounding board helped them get the, the stuff in their head that seemed to make sense out in the air and help them discover like, wow, maybe that doesn't make sense. And I think in, in, in a disagreement over, over any issue, the more of that that takes place, the more enlightenment that both sides get. And you touched on it in your answer there, this difficulty in, in a lot of negotiations in, in life at large, really, around the reality of present day gains and losses versus kind of future gains and losses. So how is it, you've written a lot about the idea that the commodity in every negotiation that we need to be most concerned about is time. How have you learned to bring, say, long-term consequences into the present day so they factor into decision-making? Are there any tactics or strategies that you've got? I'm thinking in the context of climate change when you're saying people want to are being asked to give up something now for something that's going to happen to them in the future, as some may view the, the reality of climate change, even though all the data can say we're experiencing so much change right now. But I, I wondered how you contend with those variables. Well, uh- a lot of times, you know, we're going to ask a vision, what we call visioning questions or calibrated question. A calibrated question is, is designed to take somebody to a moment in time or to compare a moment in time with the present. And so whether you're trying to get somebody to change a business decision or to change a personal decision, one of the first places to go is what happens if we do nothing? Because for most people, the real enemy is the status quo. Getting people out of the status quo is a scary thing because globally people are taught the devil known is better than the devil unknown. Or, you know, you hear different versions of that. Cheer up, things could be worse. So I cheered up and things got worse. You know, I changed my attitude. It got worse. The devil that was unknown got worse. So there's all this bad advice out there to cling to the status quo which really is an illusion because life changes some each and every day. It's just the change is so imperceivable that people seem to be content in the status quo. So a little bit of it is, all right, what happens if we do nothing? Or when things, when it's too late, how are you going to feel? Or what does too late look like? Or all right, so this isn't going to affect us. You know, how, what kind of life do you want your children to have? And that's very different from people stating, look, we, you know, uh, we're borrowing the planet from our children. You know, there's a lot of statements that are made about the future. And the, the difference in the spin is you're deferentially asking a question, a calibrated question, which is designed to get people to think like, what kind of legacy are you trying to leave behind for your children? Now, they might answer, and the point of a question like that also is not what their answer is, but what you made them think. 
in many cases, somebody might say, well, that's my kid's problem. Or, you know, I had to work on my, you know, they'll, and they may answer in anger. The answer doesn't matter from, for a great calibrated question. The, what matters really in this and tactical empathy and the black swan method is what you made them think in the moment. And you mentioned Danny Kahneman before he called it triggering slow thinking, mm -hmm. a question that stops you in your tracks. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter what you said. What matters is the thought process that you put somebody through for the long-term change, for the long-term benefit, you know, for how they react tomorrow, not how they reacted today, but how they're going to react tomorrow. Your discussion there of the status quo and this comfort that we have, better the devil you know, made me think about the challenges of innovation. And you've said that people aren't actually afraid to fail, but they're afraid to fail in a new way. You know, that whole notion of no one ever got sacked for hiring IBM, right? How do we work around that to get people to come to the table in new ways and be comfortable with trying new ideas and, and innovating? It's going to be usually a what or a how question. I mean, at some, at some point of the day, like no matter what kind of a challenge that we're coaching, and, and my team coaches lots of negotiations, you know, we're going to, we're going to want to use empathy to s set up the issue, which is basically here's how you feel about this. Before I disagree, here's how you feel. And then you're going to use a what or a how question to sort of open, open their thinking. You know, to trigger the in-depth thinking Danny Kahneman would, would ask for, or some therapists actually call this guided discovery. And Jim Camp in his book, Start With No, in 2002 said, you know, helping the other side discover uh, an outcome. So, but none of this is shoving anything down mm -hmm. somebody's throat. You're using the tactical application of empathy to clear the way to ask somebody a real tough but fair what or how question. It's deferential. There's power in deference. If you're being deferential, you're preserving their autonomy. But ultimately, you're hitting them with a question they can't get around. And that's to put them in a position where you've stopped them in their tracks because of the legitimacy and the reality of your what or how question. You put yourself in a position to, to stop them dead in their tracks with the application of empathy, you know, before I disagree with you on your position on climate change, here's what I think it is. And then you hit them with what kind of a world are you going to want? Do you want to leave behind? What's the legacy? How do we know when we need to step up and embrace the challenge? What sort of indicators are you looking for personally? And that's causing people to actually think about it. And it doesn't matter what they say. What matters is you stopped them and got them to mm. think. And that's your best chance of success. I love that. The whole piece of the thought process that you set into motion um, and the power of that, not necessarily in that moment, their immediate response, but how you're triggering them to, to think and comprehend the world differently. Chris, I wanted to ask you about um, we're heading into the COP26. World leaders are getting together again. Big climate negotiation, huge multilateral, you know, one of the largest the world has ever seen. And the history of, you know, COP25 was a, a catastrophic failure. You know, it broke down. Uh, negotiations didn't get anywhere. It was described by, uh, you know, groups like the WWF as a staggering failure of leadership. What strategies or advice do you have for people re-approaching negotiations that have a history of breaking down? How do you sort of leave the baggage at the door? And what strategies do you have for sort of, I guess, re-approaching in a way that might create the conditions for success? 
You know, well, when we're in tough negotiations, a lot of times we'll ask people, you know, what's stopping you from doing this? You know, because most of the reasons that stop people from doing stuff, if, if they really discuss them out loud, the reasons are less uh, of an, they're, they're, they're an outsized influence. They're influencing people more than they should. And people need to be given the opportunity to start talking about what's holding them back. It's much easier for them to talk about what's holding them back and then get them to begin to par- compare outcomes and get them to take a realistic look at it. Again, in, in referring to a lot of the Mideast peace negotiations, getting people to take a realistic look at what's going on and also ex- accepting their flaws and not not calling them names over it or, or accusing, accusing them over it. You know, as soon as the name calling and the finger pointing begins, you start driving people away. So, you know, what, what's stopping you guys from making this agreement? And a, a real a real wonderful thing to say to really get people to open up, which is really counterintuitive. It, it seems like you got good reasons for not doing this because people want to be heard that at least maybe there is some rationale for their thought process instead of being told they're wrong. You don't get anybody to change their mind by telling them they're wrong. What you do is you get people to change their mind by giving them some sort of safe space to discuss what's driving them and letting them sort it through on their own. That's how you get people to change your mind. And then simultaneously, you begin to, when you hear people out, you begin to establish a relationship. And which is exactly what was happening in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine before uh, Israeli prime minister was assassinated. And, you know, f- forgive my my ignorance for not being able to pull a gentleman's name, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, I think, was the one that was was assassinated. You know, he and Arafat had developed a personal relationship where they were collaborating. You know, and, and in hindsight, you know, you, you say plenty of bad things about Arafat, and you wouldn't be wrong. But he wanted to be treated like a human being, and he wanted to make a deal, and they were very close. And they were joking back and forth with each other. So, you know, give somebody the space to be flawed Mm. and to be wrong in the negotiation and you'll draw them closer together, be more likely to make a deal. Chris, I'm so grateful for the time that you've spent with us. And I've got one more question before we close our conversation. This whole series is tied together under the theme of trailblazers and you're blazing a trail with your method of negotiation, teaching and educating the world in that. For those listening who are trying to blaze their own trail, if you could encourage them to adopt one practice, one part of your black swan methodology into their day-to-day habits, um, what would you encourage them to do to help them be more effective in the change they're trying to create? Well, there's a couple of things here. Let me throw uh, a couple of simple things. You know, first of all, um, negotiation is a perishable skill. So, you, you, you know, you need to get after it a little bit each day, just a little, in small stakes conversations, small stakes conversations for high stakes results. So in, in conversations that are innocuous, where you got no skin in the, the game, make it a point to hear somebody out. Be genuinely curious. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, but just practice a little bit of genuine curiosity in your small stakes conversations, hearing the other side out. And you'll kind of get used to the magic of, of hearing people out. And, and then you'll get confident 
you'll start to begin to develop a pattern and understanding of the effectiveness of that. Then you're going to be able to be able to drop that into the conversations where you got a lot at stake. Now, now in the meantime, since it's a perishable skill, you know, I, I'd like to share how the Black Swan team could support people more moving forward if, if they would like more support from us. So we've got a free negotiation newsletter. And if and only if you want more, if and only if you want more. Now, its value is not in that it's free. That's not bad that it's free, but you get lousy stuff for free. It doesn't do you any good. You know, the, the newsletter is concise and actionable. If you go to our website, blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com, upper right-hand side on the homepage, it says blog. Click on that. There's tons of resources, articles on very specific topics. Plus, you could sign up. The email will come to you wherever you are in the world at Tuesday morning to your inbox. You got Monday behind you. Short, concise, actionable. A lot of people get a long way and really begin to transform their, their abilities with just the book, Never Split the Difference, and the newsletter alone. And then you get further on in your journey. You want more. We're there for you. But the initial steps are real simple, small stakes, and take it easier on yourself. Don't try to make quantum leaps. Just get a little bit better every day, and you'll be surprised at how soon you're making a significant difference in how you can negotiate. Sensational. I love that encouragement. Negotiation is a perishable skill. So find ways to be engaging and being genuinely curious and hearing people each and every day. Chris, thank you so much for spending time with us and being part of this series. I so appreciate the very pragmatic and tactical way you've talked us through so many different strategies and approaches that can empower everyone listening to be more effective in their negotiation. Thank you so much for your work and for your contribution to the series. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks to EY for partnering with us to amplify people following the path of most resistance. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and subscribe to the series. Are you a trailblazer or inspired by a trailblazer? Leave a comment, let us know, join the movement.